Hello and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua, your host, and today's episode will be a continuance in a sense of the topics that we have been covering. So we are going to talk about things like historical cycles and parallels and the Church of Woke and these types of topics, but we are definitely going to be hitting those from a different perspective with a different angle and I think you are really going to enjoy this conversation and get a lot out of the content. We are not recovering things very much. We are talking about a lot of new aspects to these old concepts. And so with that, let me introduce my guest for this interview. This would be Michael Vlejos. He has many credentials that are very relevant here. And so if you would, would you go ahead and uh, let the listeners know who you are, what your background is, and get us started on this journey into these topics that we will be covering. Well, thank you, Joshua. I mean, it will be compressed. There's no need to go on at length about my provenance. But the fact is that I've been engaged in in trying to understand not simply the human condition, but the pathways of our evolution and that evolution isn't simply physical, it's also cultural. Uh, ever since I was, well, hey, five or six years old, and you'll just have to take that on, on my account here because that's true. And the fact is, so 60 or so years plus of this sort of exploration has led me to uh, a larger understanding um, of what the pathways are of, of human culture on our planet. And, um, you know, my background is, uh, how shall we say it? You know, Yale, State Department, CIA, Navy, um, PhD, uh, all sorts of, you know, um, not necessarily worthwhile credentials but nonetheless badges that I think uh, are used mostly to gain entry into the social world of the Washington establishment. But the fact is that all of my thinking, reflection, and research has brought me to a point where I am at the moment uh, very concerned about the state of humanity. Yeah, I think we can agree with you on that. And uh, getting into our subject here, you had mentioned before we started recording that you had listened to some of the previous series that I did with Ben Armani and some of those more mystical topics that we got into. Um, could you give us a little bit of a segue from that into what you're talking about? Because I think the previous series is probably going to be something that's a little more uh, theoretical, mystical, immaterial, and I think what you are getting into is going to be a little more concrete, a little more focused on the history and really digging into this uh, from a different perspective. So maybe you could give us that segue and then let us know kind of where you see us today as a society. Well, well, there are two elements to parse in terms of your interviews with uh, Vin Armani. First of all, uh, Vin is a sincere and authentic explorer, and he has 
um, gone through his own passage of discovery, and uh, he has touched upon places of of truth, places of revelation, and in in truth, given his um, meanderings, he has actually hit upon many of the issues that are challenging us and testing us uh, today. And so what, what his passage tells me is that many uh, Americans are not only capable of this passage, but many Americans feel in their gut, in their emotional heart, that, that, that something is wrong with the world we inhabit today. And something needs to happen, needs to change in, in our world. And that the verities that we have been given or were given over the last 50 or 60 years no longer hold. And I think it's also important that he, in his journeys and exploration, uh, called upon many a powerful philosophies of knowledge and insight, say in in the world of um, of India, that that provide a kind of framework to explore these things. But I think today that that we need to call upon a larger host of frameworks that will give us an analytical hold or analytical place to stand where we can better see what is happening in the world today. And I'm talking about um, everything that we can extract from the knowledge disciplines of anthropology, uh, philosophy, uh, anthropology, and sociology to understand why human societies go through tremendous periods of crisis and change and ultimately transformation. Because what I believe above all is that we're facing uh, a powerful crisis globally uh, as humanity, uh, a crisis that will lead to a transformation or, in contrast, a collapse. Yeah, I think a lot of us are seeing that. Like you mentioned how Vin's come across that. I've come across that on my own. And uh, I've noticed that there's a lot of resonance with the topics that I've been covering, especially in this recent series and getting into these historical patterns and trying to really analyze what's going on with the culture, with society, the hierarchy, all of these types of things. It's really, it's really resonating with people. And I think, like you said, that's, that's something that is very encouraging, that people are starting to seek that out. They are starting to see these things for themselves, that something's not right, that something is happening, that we're in some sort of shift, some sort of transition as far as a society, a culture, things are changing. And a lot of people are seeking for many different ways of explaining that and looking at different disciplines. And I, I think I really agree with what you're saying about how we really need to have 
a lot of different perspectives and different frameworks that are fairly concrete that we can rely on and draw together to give us this opportunity to really analyze what's going on. I think that's something that is extremely important and extremely helpful to be a little more interdisciplinary, which in academia, that's not necessarily always the case. And with the common person, that's also not necessarily always the case. And so I think that's a different approach than the way this issue and this analysis has been often looked at. And I think it's a very helpful approach. And so uh, I, I think what I would like to start off with is maybe get your view of what I guess, how society is structured right now, as far as the different stratifications between different classes, kind of what some of these problems are, and how Western societies are are just how they're structured, how they're working, how the power dynamics are playing out, some of these types of things, and give us a snapshot of where we are and what is wrong right now. Well, I mean, Joshua, if I could lay out um, some of the issues in our society, but at the same time then put them into the context of other situations in our civilization in the past that have come into crisis. Because what I see today in our world is nothing less than a civilizational crisis. A civilizational crisis that will not <laughs> lead to terrible uh, apocalyptic outcomes, but actually maybe to a better world. And so um, to put it plainly, uh, the world that we live in today is burdened by having a society writ large, and that's Western society and modernity, uh, a, a society that is increasingly stratified between uh, what I call the one plus nine percent, the the dominant one percent who are calling the shots, and the nine percent who serve them, and then the ninety percent who are treated like sheep, like livestock, and who are increasingly disenfranchised, marginalized and deprived of, of any sort of status as they once were given back in the earliest days of the Republic, all the way through um, the 1930s into the 1970s, when, when Americans saw themselves as a collective of equal citizens. That's all gone now. And so our, our world right now, is in a crisis. That crisis uh, can be seen in, in the media, which is shrill and desperate, and in the government, which is equally desperate to maintain control over people's lives. And I think to understand why we're at this terrible pass, uh, in the life of our civilization, it's worth going back and understanding what this problem means in historical terms. And 
going back to the emergence of civilization itself, civilization was the creation of a world of cities in which people were compacted and lived together in a kind of uh, amazingly intimate way that unleashed tremendous, tremendous creative energy and that was also associated with the development of uh, what amounted to a kind of global network. That didn't include the New World, but it was a global network in Eurasia. And the fact is that this network of trade and interchange meant that you had a kind of interaction between millions of people, even uh, in the Bronze Age, but then later on, that was interconnected. And that interconnection meant that uh, those societies were vulnerable. But above all, what the emergence of civilization and a world of cities meant was that the city-state became the focal point of society. And in that city-state world, the Bronze Age, and then later on, all the way up until today, uh, in the city-state world, there emerged what we would call a hieratic class. Hieratic means a priestly class, an aristocratic class, an elite class that ran the society. Now, that, that had never existed in the Pleistocene or even the early Neolithic. What emerged with the development of civilizations and cities and the global network of cities was that you had uh, an aristocratic, hieratic class that essentially ran everything. Now, they forced and also elicited tremendous outpourings of artistic creation and all sorts of great things that we can see, uh, whether it was in the Bronze Age or in antiquity or in the medieval world or even in the world of modernity. Uh, but those things were, <laughs> were created at the expense of 90% of the population that were essentially status degraded, culturally herded, and wealth starved. They were, in the, in the days of, of the Middle Ages, they were serfs. In early modernity, they were still remarkably, even as late as the 18th century, still serfs. So in America today, you have a society in which there is the same hieratic class, where you have a 1% that essentially is in charge with a 9% that serves them, you know, as lawyers, doctors, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have 90% of our population that is completely passively at their mercy, that have no real political rights, they're completely manipulated, and they are used and driven into a world of materialism and, and narcissistic pleasure in which they can be controlled. And that is 
a terrible outcome, but it is not an outcome that was very much different, say, from late antiquity. If you were to look at the Roman Empire, as opposed to, say, the Roman Republic, where you had a tremendous leveling and a remarkable equality between Roman citizens, by, by the time you get to the Roman Empire in the third century, for example, Roman Romans who were not of the elite were essentially at the elite's mercy. And the fact is that that was a world in which two out of every five people were slaves. And it was a world where people were, were leaving and fleeing the oppression of that society and uh, were considered to be, in their own way, terrorists, Bagaude, and who are creating uh, places in southern France and in Spain where they were essentially autonomous. And you had a world where uh, things weren't working any longer because the, um, the dominant class had created uh, such a, a control that it couldn't be unlocked. And, and this is part of what we have to worry about today. Yeah, you saw the same control in the classic height of the Middle Ages. You know, if you were to look at Europe and say 1300, you would see a world where uh, priests and the aristocracy ran everything. And a world where, again, the 90% were downtrodden in ways that um, were unimaginable. They were no different from uh, chattel slaves in practice, say, in the uh, American South in the first half of the 19th century. And so you had a terrible situation. And this is where we are today increasingly, because even if we don't want to admit it, the concentration of wealth that has occurred in the last 30 or 40 years is unimaginable. And so if I were to take, uh, say, the United States in the period of the Great Depression and World War II, which were, you know, a dramatically and emotionally traumatic, and then say, uh, oh, is that terrible or not? Well, Americans emerged from World War II as a society in which uh, there was uh, no concentration of wealth to speak of, and there was huge e equality. And yet that, that world of, say, the later 1940s by the early 1980s had been destroyed. And since then, there has been such a relentless, remorseless concentration of wealth to the point where you have a few archons, you know, Bill Gates and all of his billionaire friends who really are in total control. And they are just like the 
the high aristocrats of the Roman Empire at the very end of the Roman Empire, when it fell in the West. And so I think we need to understand how strange our society has become. And we also need to understand, and this is extremely important, that the people who call themselves progressive in the blue world are the elite. They are those who would perpetuate their world, who would perpetuate a world where each generation, their wealth grows and grows and grows, and where the 90% are increasingly downtrodden. And it is no surprise that these um, (laughs) dominant aristocrats would talk endlessly and always about how they are going to help the downtrodden, that they are going to uh, relieve them and make their life better and, and end this disproportion of wealth. But that is not what they will do. What they will do is find a way to uh, essentially perpetuate the world that they like. And the question is, how are they doing that? And that is where we get to the Church of Woke. Yeah, yeah, that's actually how I found you, was that someone referred me to an article you had written about the Church of Woke, and you were the only person that I have found that really dug into that issue using that title and did it with depth and an amount of research that showed that you definitely knew what you were talking about. You were touching on things that we're explaining reality and we're giving true analysis. And so that's really what turned me on to you. And I read a few more of your articles that I had found online, watched a few videos, and uh, I subsequently ended up uh, reaching out to you. And so that's kind of what really keyed me into your way of thinking and your analysis and your expertise in this. And so I know in one of the articles I read, you had mentioned how Rome, as it got into this period near the end prior to the fall, there was already a cultural shift, a cultural fall, a cultural uh, leaving of the elitist society, so to say, that was happening, and religion was playing a role in that. And you just brought up the, the Church of Woke and how in today's modern world we see these shifts and we see religion playing a role in that. Can you talk a little more about the role of religion in the context of these shifts that are going on? Well, we have to understand what religion is. And religion is not um, really um, about any sort of um, commitment or belief in a deity. Religion is from the Latin word religare, to bind. It is about how people are bound together, how they feel that they belong to each other, and how they find meaning in life. So inevitably, and this is borne out if you read uh, Clifford Geertz, uh, a, a great original anthropologist in the 1940s, religion is about creating a blueprint for life. So if you look at Islam or Christianity or any religion, what you see is an entire framework for how people should live. 
And ultimately what that means is rules and customs, taboo, and an entire incumbent, incumbency on people so that they um, do things. Uh, and yet, even though that, those, seem, those things look as though they were controlling, they are in effect providing a kind of bower, a kind of embracing uh, framework for people to, to be together. And this is essential in all religion. Now, the problem that uh, we're suffering from now in the United States is that the original American religion, which we often call American exceptionalism, which many like Robert Bella have written about as the American civil religion, was the uh, religion that tied America together, oh, I don't know, since the founding, since the mid-1770s until today. And it was a religion that had a framework for living and that it manifested itself in all sorts of rules and approaches you know, um, individualism, uh, responsibility, uh, political commitment uh, uh, in terms of citizenship, a, a whole bunch of things. And of course, above all, equality, equality under the law, but also a kind of equality as a sense of we're all together as Americans. That was the basis, ultimately, because it survived the stresses of the Civil War and continued, that was the basis for America's great triumph coming out of the Depression, going into World War II, that made America such a magnificently powerful force in the world. It was a vision of, of a kind of society in which everyone was equal and together. And the Church of Woke, in contrast, has emerged, and it's emerged slowly but progressively, to use a term, over the last 50 years, as a, oh, how to put this? It's, it has Marxist inputs, but it is more um, properly understood as a successor to American exceptionalism in the sense that it has uh, uh, its roots in the American experience, but it proposes itself as a successor religion to American exceptionalism in which <laughs> our society will be based on an entirely different calculus and an entirely different set of existential postulates in which groups and their identity and their belonging will supplant the idea of a national sense of belonging and togetherness, as in the original Latin, religare, to bind. In, in other words, the national religion won't bind everyone together, but rather it will create a, a tapestry of subdivision in which different groups 
will will have their own vision, their own belief system, their own sense of who they are, and the government will be in charge of assigning their status. And the government will be in charge of uh, uh, assigning whether they are protected or preferred groups or whether they are groups that need to be, say, punished. And so what we have today emerging is a very different society of, 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 of splinterization in which uh, a menagerie of groups will be competing and contending against each other for rights and privileges. And right now, privileges are being assigned to certain groups and being denied to others. And all of this seems, uh, well, crazy and somewhat irrational compared to the vision of of equality of the former uh, national religion in which every uh, American was considered to be an American and thus together by virtue of being an American citizen. Well, there's a reason I would argue for the emergence of the Church of Woke. A Church of Woke exists because it is a cynical pathway, an instrumentality for the national elite to maintain its minority control of America and to divide the 90% of Americans into a splinterized aggregation of tiny groups that can be controlled because they can't get together. So in other words, what I call the nine plus one, the one percent and the nine percent, will be in control forever because the <laughs> the aggregate of Americans can't get together. They're separated by definition. They're splintered. They're they're subdivided. And so what I see is a a church of woke that is at its heart a desperately cynical path to elite control by a terribly selfish aristocracy that seeks only to increase its own wealth and cares nothing about the impoverishment of the vast majority of Americans. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely see that too. Um, I think that it would be obvious, I would think at least, that these elites, aristocrats, the uh, 1% definitely, maybe also the 9%, that they see these things too. They're, they're definitely not unintelligent or uneducated. And I am sure that the idea of historical cycles and patterns and examples uh, I'm pretty sure that a lot of them probably have this on their minds as well. And I'm pretty sure that many of them can see the same things you and I can see and many others can see that that there is this shift going on. There are these cultural changes that are happening. There is a future that we are heading into. And uh, I would assume, again, that it 
would not be hidden from them that throughout history, usually you had more individualistic religions or movements or uh, things like this that come about within the society that start to shift away from the previous hierarchical aristocratic uh, structure that existed before and that that has been what has happened oftentimes in history when you look at the cycle of civilizations and so if let's say i was one of these one percent and i see that this is likely what's going to happen because history has shown that this is a pattern this is a cycle this is the way things usually go then i would either want to perpetuate where we are now for as long as possible and just maintain my grip as much as I can, as tight as I can, maybe a little tighter. And so at least I still get to enjoy this and get to get a little more before that shift happens. Or I think the alternative would be to attempt to take the reins. And I wouldn't say that most people would be so bold as to say they could totally change um, the way cycles and patterns play out in civilizations that, oh, this time will be different. Um, I think most people in that situation would probably recognize that, yes, there are shifts. Yes, society change, societies change. And yes, uh, you do see a rise and a fall of civilizations. But what if we can control that fall so that we will be in a position that as we are in the new state of being after the fall, we still have power and control. We are that remaining group. Whereas maybe when Rome fell, you had the church that became the institution, the power group, so to say, that ended up performing that role in society as you had the empire of Rome was one structure, that structure fell, and another one has to replace it. We always always have these structures and institutions and hierarchies in our societies. And so the one to replace it was the church. Well, what if the elite of Rome saw what was happening, saw the fall coming, got ahead of it, planned for it, set themselves up to be that next institution, and kind of guided the society, guided maybe the movement of Christianity, guided things into a position that would put them in a beneficial state at the end. And so I wonder, at least, if this is something that is being attempted, because as I see some of these movements that are more individualistic, more of the common people rising up against the establishment, against the system, and joining together. Because we are becoming more divided and subdivided, and you have the divide and conquer strategy going there. But the recent movements of uh, basically pushback to that, you have things like the storming of the capital or the game stock issue with the stock market and the Reddit group and all this kind of stuff. Uh, there have been multiple times when things like these have happened just in our recent history. And uh, you could even go to Black Lives Matter and other movements that are happening just in the past few years or past year, I guess. And it, it seems obvious that in all of these situations, when you look at how things end up after that has happened let's say after the capital riots occurred or after the uh, GameStop rise, GameStop stock rise happened, uh, who benefits in the end? Well, 
after the Capitol riots, it basically just gave an excuse to pass a bunch of new legislation and to claim that there is this, you know, horrible insurrection and terrorist attack. And that then gives them the leeway and the motivation to institute more controls that they probably wanted to do anyway. And if you look at the GameStop issue, well, yes, there might have been or there were a few hedge funds that really didn't do so well there. The ones that were shorting GameStop stock uh, definitely got hit hard. But what happened? All the others did great. You had BlackRock, one of the biggest investment firms in the world who actually handles a lot of our own government's investments. Uh, They were holding GameStop stock as were many other large players that would we would include in this 1%. And so in the end, what happens? Well, they actually made a bunch of money. And so I kind of wonder if that is a strategy that is being attempted to be pursued here, where they see that there are changes happening in society and that we are at the tail end of an empire, of an age. And it seems like they might be trying to kind of guide and design how that shift happens, recognizing that a shift will happen, but trying to maybe take control of that so that they can maintain their wealth. Is that something that you see happening at all? Or do you think it's more of the strategy of hold on tight, hold on tighter and gain as much as we can before anything happens? Well, uh, Joshua, I think you, you have it exactly right. You know, if we were to look at the Roman Empire at the beginning of the fifth century, um, the old ways of Rome and the old dominant aristocracy was under enormous pressure. And the new aristocracy, which was based on the church, which in the West was taking over only after, oh, I would say 500 Uh, They were intent on creating a new structure of control. That wasn't possible for actually quite a while, a couple centuries. And during those centuries, people were actually unburdened by having an elite that was pushing them down. But the fact is, yes, and this was certainly true in the Eastern Empire, is that The old aristocracy was replaced by a new aristocracy uh, of Christians who had created their own original version of what we now understand in contemporary terms as the Church of Woke. In other words, they created a new basis for hieratic priestly authority to say, hey, you have to do what we tell you to do. And this is, in effect, what happened uh, to Rome. The Western Roman Empire didn't fall. It was replaced by a successor Western Empire uh, of, of the Catholic Church, the Latin Church, with all of its power developing and growing century by century up until you know, um, the 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries, where the Pope was like the replacement emperor. Well, what's happening today is that an elite that was faced, to be honest, it was faced with a complete revolt of the people, of populism, 
Uh, it might have called itself the Tea Party, but it was also equally to be um, uh, represented in in the whole Bernie thing, the whole Bernie Sanders revolt, which was ruthlessly put down by the Democratic Party twice. That all represents a desire of regular people to be free, to be liberated, and to, to have space for their lives. And the fact is that this nine plus one aristocracy has managed to create a, a successor religion in which <laughs> they have the right and the authority to tell everyone else how to live and also to separate and divide people. And this Church of Woke is literally no different in its approach to controlling society than the Latin church was in the high Middle Ages from Rome. It is a ruthless totalitarian vision that seeks to control people at the most intimate and granular level and to create a society in which regular people, and I'm talking about the 90% of Americans who are being devalued and marginalized and reduced in their status constantly, are to be put in a situation of servile submission. I am going to go ahead and stop this section of the interview here. That is as good of a stopping place as I could find. There really wasn't a great one. So hopefully that at least wraps up that thought that he was discussing there. And hopefully you have really enjoyed this interview so far. Coming next week in the following episode, I will release the second half of the interview where we get into even more of these types of topics and the conversation moves forward from here. Uh, I might replay that last bit that he had said there to make sure that there's some good uh, continuity or I might give a recap like I usually do at the beginning. But either way, I will wrap up this interview in the following episode and that will finish up this section, and then I will move on to something new. The plan as of now, and I think I'm good for it, is to have another guest that is also extremely good on the topics that she covers, and it is very relevant, and we are slowly moving towards being more focused on kind of a ground-level approach. So with the Vin Armani series, it was much more esoteric. It was spiritual at times. It was that style and that viewpoint, which is very good. It's very beneficial. There's nothing wrong with it. But I want to make sure that I hit things from all of these different perspectives so we can get a complete view. So uh, that was the original. And then this interview with Michael Vlahos, we get into a little bit more of a concrete perspective, but still very macro and fairly conceptual and very broad. And so getting into the following interview after this, I will try to get even more narrowed down to things that are actually going on right now, things we can see, we can put our finger on, agendas that are actually playing out. And so that'll get more and more concrete. 
And that should lead us into a follow-up interview with Vin Armani, where him and I get into some very concrete aspects of community and related topics and how things are playing out and where we're going from here. And all of that will lead us very well, I believe, into season three of this podcast. I have been threatening to get to season three for months now, and it just ended up being that there was a lot more to cover. I didn't plan on doing this. I planned on doing a few kind of brief interlude episodes about my opinions and how I saw things playing out. It was the beginning of the whole COVID pandemic. And so I felt like I really needed to talk about those things. And the format of this show in general is one where I've followed fairly structured layouts covering content roughly chronologically in a fairly systematic way. And so I wanted to take a brief interlude and give my opinions on things and cover some other stuff that didn't really fit into that structure. But that kind of has now morphed into a much bigger interlude between season two and season three. And then As I was about to wrap that up, even with all the COVID stuff and explaining all that and getting into some of those agendas, then Vin Armani came along. And the Demage series is what happened after that. And that took quite a while. And so now I'm doing these other two interviews, at least possibly a third. And after this, then I believe we will get into season three officially. So that's where we are. That's where we're headed. I do want to specifically say thank you to those of you who have left ratings and reviews. That is very, very helpful and appreciated. I got on there yesterday, as of this recording at least, and saw that there were nine or ten reviews or something and 30-something ratings or something like that, which I know is not a lot for a very large podcast, but this podcast is not very large. And so uh, at least there is more than the two or three that were in existence for the first year or more of the show. So now people who look it up actually can read a few reviews and get a feel for what to expect. And these reviews, especially the most recent ones, have been very flattering and very encouraging, and they have been very positive. So Thank you very much for that. I really appreciate that. I appreciate having you guys as listeners. I appreciate hearing from you. So please do email me, get in touch with me somehow. Let me know how you are feeling about this content, what you are thinking about it, what you would like to hear more of, what you think works and doesn't. And I will incorporate that feedback into the show. So please do that. I love to hear from you. Thank you very much to the people supporting on Patreon and maybe one day Subscribestar if anybody chooses to go that avenue. I really appreciate that. That is a really big deal. I am finally at the point where I can cover any expenses for the podcast with support from you guys. So thank you very much. That really means a lot to me. Uh, Also, as another random announcement, I recently did another interview on the Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence podcast, and that was one that we have recorded, but he has not uh, edited and released that yet. But when he does, I would highly recommend checking that out, and I will announce that when that happens too. I think that interview went really well. We talked a lot about the types of concepts that were discussed in the Dim Age series, uh, but we're a little more focused and we're able to tie everything together from end to end and it went really well. So I think that's one you're really going to enjoy and I will let you know when that drops as well. So 
Until then, thank you very much for all of your support of all kinds. Thank you for listening. I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.